and welcome to Genius Law Minds, the podcast about childhood mental health from the perspective of a licensed mental health professional. I'm Dr. Madeline Vieira, a clinical child psychologist specializing in infant mental health and childhood anxiety disorders. I'm also a mother of three girls, ages six, four, and three, so I can personally relate to a lot of the struggles parents go through. Raising healthy children is important. So on each episode of Genius Little Minds, we'll dive into an aspect of childhood mental health. I'm here to shine a light on the tough issues that families like you are facing every day. Things like childhood mood disorders, anxiety, tricky family dynamics, and more. I'll guide you through the various aspects of children's mental health so you not only understand your child better, but also feel empowered as a parent to make decisions and help them seek treatment if it's needed. My mission is to demystify childhood mental health issues so you can connect with your child better and help them lead a healthy, happy life. Throughout the podcast, I'll help you understand the signs, symptoms, and treatments for various childhood psychological disorders. We'll talk about how you can best support your child in both school and at home, and how to find professional help if necessary. Together, we'll navigate tough topics like infant attachment, toddler tantrums, signs of anxiety, ADHD, and childhood depression, intrusive thoughts or obsessive behaviors, and so much more. So whether you're having trouble bonding with your newborn or you have an older child displaying behavioral difficulties, this podcast is for you. I work with infants and children with a wide range of mental health concerns. If you gain one thing from this podcast is that you are not alone. Thousands of families struggle with the same things that you do. And the good news is help is available. I believe that with the right information, you can make empowered decisions for your family. So what is infant mental health and why are we talking about it in the first place? Believe it or not, even your little bundle of joy has mental health needs. And they start when your child is still in the womb. Yes, even before your little one is babbling or crawling, walking or talking, their mental health is developing. And you, loving parent that you are, are doing everything you can to provide affection and protection for your child. So where do you start with their mental health needs? You can think of infant mental health as infant brain health, and brain health is crucial to an infant's development. It all starts before the child is even born. Previously, it was thought that as long as pregnant women avoided harmful substances like drugs or alcohol and ate enough nutrients, healthy babies would be born. But research shows that when the pregnant mother is stressed, the fetus is negatively impacted. Prenatal stress is associated with altered brain structure and function a child will be at an increased risk for developing ADHD or conduct disorder, having impaired cognitive development and emotional issues if a mom is stressed, depressed, or anxious during pregnancy. People stressed during pregnancy are more likely to deliver preterm or before 37 weeks. Low birth weight is also associated with maternal stress during pregnancy, and complications can arise later for preterm babies like chronic lung disease, learning disorders, or developmental delays. Babies who are stressed out in utero are more likely to develop chronic health problems as adults, like diabetes, high blood pressure, or heart disease. If you're currently pregnant, I'm not telling you this to make you more stressed out. I'm hoping to do the opposite, because prenatal stress can have a lasting impact on an infant's health, neurocognitive development, and immune system functioning, 
it's important you take care of yourself as best you can. Work with your healthcare provider and social network to develop a plan to help you cope with the stresses of pregnancy. Today's episode is all about understanding your infant's mental or brain health from the womb to one year. We'll cover some basic brain science, developmental stages, and go over some signs that your infant's mental health may need attending to. Your baby's brain starts to develop when still in the womb. In the first trimester, the brain is rapidly developing and it makes up about half of the fetus's body weight. Half! This is in contrast to when the baby is born and the brain makes up only about 10% of their body weight. That's a huge difference. In the second trimester, sucking and swallowing become possible and you may begin to feel your baby kick. This is because the cerebellum, which is responsible for motor control, is growing. Your baby's nervous system has also developed enough that they can hear your voice or loud noises from outside. You may even feel them startle at loud sounds like thunder cracks during a storm, but the sound of your voice can be comforting or soothing. In the third trimester, the baby's brain will triple in size. The cerebellum starts to develop rapidly, so kicking, stretching, and wiggling fingers and toes is bound to happen at this stage. When your baby is born, they'll know your voice. They won't see that well yet, and their body will continue to fold slightly. Their fingers and feet naturally curl inward, and their arms and legs fold toward their body, mimicking the position they held in the womb. Over time, their body will begin to unfold and lengthen, and their brain will continue to develop and grow, with your help for many years to come. It's truly amazing how fast a baby's brain develops in their first few years of life, and you are a key part of their early experiences and development. Opportunities to communicate, take in sensory information, move and learn are so important in a baby's life. When a baby is born, their brain is about a quarter of the size of an adult brain. And in the first 12 months alone, their brain doubles in size. And by the time your little angel is three years old, her brain has reached almost 80% of its adult size. The human body is truly amazing. babies are born, their brains have about 100 billion neurons. That's as many stars as there are in the Milky Way. Neurons and synapses are what make communication between the brain and the rest of the body possible. Children are born with basically all the neurons they'll ever have in their lifetime. I'm going to give you a very simple overview of the brain so we can briefly go over how your child's brain develops. There's the brainstem and the cerebellum. The brainstem connects your brain to your spinal cord and it controls involuntary processes like your breathing, blood pressure, and heart rate. The cerebellum is responsible for virtually all physical movement, so it controls your balance, motor skills, coordination, and reflexes. Then there's a limbic system, which is responsible for more instinctive reactions like emotions, responses to stress, reward-seeking behaviors. It's also involved in processing memory and the production and regulation of hormones. Lastly, there's the cerebral cortex, which is the wrinkly-looking outer surface of the brain. It's made up of four lobes, which each have their own functions. Together, they're responsible for vision, hearing, language, processing sensory information, planning, problem-solving, and much more. A child's brain has up to twice as many synapses in her first three years of life 
than it will have in adulthood. Very simply put, synapses are where neurons go to talk to each other. And in the first few years of a child's life, synapses are formed at a faster rate than at any other time. Throughout childhood and the teen years, synapses begin to get gradually pruned or eliminated, which is a natural process we all go through. It's like building muscles. Use it or lose it. The synapse pathways that get used more get stronger, while the ones that aren't used or are used very little get eliminated. Stable, nurturing, positive relationships with parents and adults help babies develop strong, healthy brains. So does stimulation, love, and caring attention. But the opposite is also true. Toxic stress, or the prolonged activation of the body's stress response, overloads developing systems and can have lifelong consequences for children. Persistent negative experiences means fewer brain connections will form, and those that do will develop at a slower rate. So why are we talking about this? Because a child's environment helps determine not only which synapses are used more and which are used less, but it also helps them develop what's called an internal working model. This is closely tied to attachment theory and is essentially a cognitive framework that allows people to understand the world, themselves, and others. Your internal working model helps you decide if other people are fundamentally trustworthy, if you think you're a valuable person, and if you feel effective when interacting with other people. And it's developed through the relationships babies have with their parents or caregivers. It's the same thing for the development and use of brain synapses. If a baby is talked to or read too often, for example, the brain regions associated with language development light up and those synapses are activated more often. But if a baby and his or her family has to face severe, prolonged, or repetitive adversity, and the parent or caregiver is unable to relieve the child's stress response, then an abnormal stress response develops. Part of healthy development includes learning to deal with stress. Stress, to a certain degree, is a normal part of life. When you're feeling stressed, your body's stress response is activated. Your brain and body go on high alert. You get an adrenaline rush, your heart rate increases, as do your stress hormones. The same is true for a child. And when a baby is soothed by a caring adult, their stress response can wind down quickly and their body returns to normal. Babies actually develop the ability to self-soothe or self-regulate through their relationships with nurturing, warm, and responsive adults. But if there's no caring adult acting as a buffer against the stress, the baby's stress response stays activated, even if there isn't any immediate danger. If this happens a lot, meaning soothing adults are frequently absent or unable to regulate the baby, then toxic stress can occur. And the prolonged activation of stress hormones in infancy and early childhood can reduce neural connections when they should actually be multiplying. Children who experience toxic stress in early childhood are more likely to develop long-term negative health problems that may not show up until adulthood. Poor coping skills and stress management capabilities, mental illness, and physical disease are all more likely for children who experience toxic stress. We can avoid toxic stress if the environments children are growing up and developing in are stable, nurturing, and engaging. Let's use Piaget's stages of cognitive development theory to help inform how to interact with your little one so they become as healthy, active, and engaged as possible. Jean Piaget was a 20th century psychologist and cognitive theorist. He made it clear that children are not just small adults 
but rather they think about and interact with the world much differently. He developed a four-stage theory of cognitive development. And today we're going to talk about the first stage, the sensory motor stage, which children are in from birth to about age two. In the sensory motor stage, babies are using movement and their senses to understand the world. As a newborn, basic reflexes are possible. When you brush your infant's cheek, for example, their sucking reflex is engaged. This first substage is called reflex acts. In the sensory motor stage, babies are learning about their environment through their senses, what they hear, see, touch, smell, and taste. The one major thing you can do to help your newborn develop is called tummy time. Time your baby spends on his or her stomach while awake and supervised. It's a vital exercise for your newborn to develop motor, visual, and sensory skills, as well as strong neck and shoulder muscles. The muscles your newborn develops during tummy time will eventually help them sit up, roll over, crawl, and ultimately walk. Tummy time also helps prevent positional plagiocephaly, flat spots on the baby's head, which result from too much time spent on their back. When your infant is developing, you'll notice all sorts of amazing changes. During the second substage, primary circular reactions, a baby between one to four months old can purposely do things that are pleasurable to them like wiggling their fingers or sucking their thumb. The next time someone criticizes you for letting your child suck their thumb, you can say, I'm supporting their primary circular reaction. Another important aspect of the sensory motor stage happens in the third substage, secondary circular reactions. When your baby is around four to eight months old, at this age, they come to understand cause and effect. They learn that when they shake their rattle, it makes noise. And if they like that noise, they'll keep shaking and shaking it. It can be really fun to watch your child learn that they can make things happen on their own. In the fourth substage, coordinating secondary schemes, your 8 to 12-month-old can start to use information to reach a goal. If they're reaching for their rattle, for example, wanting to shake it, but it's being blocked by something, they'll move that thing out of the way to get to their goal, the rattle. They grow up so fast, don't they? Today, they're reaching for toys. Tomorrow, university honors. The fifth and last substage we're going to cover today is tertiary circular reactions, which is when your 12 to 18-month-old infant can take an object apart and try to put it back together. Do you have nesting cups? If you don't, you may want to get some. Watch your baby take the cups apart and then try to put them back, one inside the other. It's fun to watch your little ones grow and learn right before your very eyes. From making gurgling sounds to cooing, learning to turn their head at the sound of your voice, and developing the ability to follow moving objects with their eyes, there are certain cognitive, movement, language, and social skills your child should be hitting around certain age markers. These are called developmental milestones. I actually have an entire blog series dedicated to childhood development by age, starting with newborns and will eventually go all the way up to early childhood. So be sure to go to www.drmadelinevieira.com forward slash blog to check those out. On the blog, you'll find lots of parenting tips too. As your infant is taking in different experiences, exploring cause and effect, and remembering that certain actions can have certain outcomes, they're also developing the very important understanding of object permanence. Object permanence means an infant understands that even they no longer see, hear, or feel a person or object. That person or object still exists. 
So, if you hide a toy under a blanket and your child understands object permanence, he will try to look for it. He may even try to pull the toy out of its hiding place. But if he hasn't yet grasped the concept of object permanence, instead of looking for the toy, he'll probably just become confused or upset because he thinks a toy disappeared for good. When they begin to understand object permanence, babies can interact with the world in more complex ways. They're starting to understand more abstract concepts. Object permanence usually develops around eight months, but babies as young as four months may start to show some understanding of the concept. Ever wondered why parents play peekaboo? It's to help with the concept of object permanence. Same thing for baby books with things hiding under flaps. Object permanence can coincide with separation anxiety. For very young babies, when an adult leaves a room, they're more or less out of sight, out of mind. But that often changes at around seven months. Around this time, your baby may start to display anxiety or wariness of strangers. As distressing as this is for both of you, this is actually a normal part of their development. Your seven-month-old might cry when the babysitter comes or you do a drop-off at grandma's. This is because they can now recognize faces and they strongly prefer your face over anyone else's. Anxiety around strangers is common and expected in children this age. It's actually common through age two. This is not a sign of emotional issues. It's part of your child's cognitive development and entirely normal. You can help alleviate separation anxiety by forming strong bedtime and goodbye routines. And over time, your child will learn that you'll always come back for them. If your child suffers from more severe separation anxiety, be sure to check out my podcast episode on anxiety disorders. While separation anxiety isn't necessarily a sign that your infant is struggling with their mental health, there are some indicators to be aware of. Since infants aren't able to communicate their needs or concerns with words, it's important to look out for signs that they may be having difficulties with their mental health. If they don't want to be held, if they're fussy and you can't comfort them when they're upset, if they avoid eye contact or have feeding or sleeping difficulties, you may want to consult your healthcare provider. Other signs of mental health difficulties include restlessness, distress or fear, persistent crying, gastric disturbances, and the lack of weight gain and failure to meet developmental milestones. Sometimes a caregiver is unable to provide consistent, reliable care to an infant despite their best efforts. This may be due to their own mental illness, their own history of neglect or abuse, or a lack of social support, especially for single parents. Financial stress, relationship conflict, and alcohol or drug abuse can all contribute to a parent not being able to consistently meet their infant's needs. Raising kids is hard work. There's just no way around that. But there's support available if you know where to look for it. There are actually professionals trained in newborn behavior observation, which can be extremely helpful. If you're looking for insight into how to read your infant better, understand their cues, bond with them, and interact with them in ways that will encourage your relationship to thrive, seek support from an expert in infant and early childhood development. You can also listen to my last podcast episode on attachment theory, which explains how to form a secure, trusting attachment relationship with your infant. Your baby's brain develops through stimulation and rest. 
There are so many wonderful ways you can support your baby's development. Cuddling, singing and reading to them, soothing them when they're in distress, and encouraging movement are all great places to start. I go into more detail on what parents and caregivers can do at each stage on my blog. And as always, now is a portion of the podcast where I take caller questions. On every episode, we hear from parents from all over the world in the hopes that we'll help you get some clarity on how to support your child. Hi there. Um, I'm Noor phoning from Dubai, UAE. My husband and I both come from very anxious families. Uh, we've been both on anti-anxiety medications at different points in our lives. And I'm terrified that once I give birth, I'm going to suffer from postpartum depression or anxiety um, and not be able to bond properly with my baby. Are there things I can do now, um, I'm six months pregnant, uh, to try to prevent postpartum anxiety? Will I definitely pass on my anxiety to my child if I'm anxious around him? Hmm, or is it possible he won't inherit it? Um, in case you can't tell, this is our first child, huh? Hi, Noor. Congratulations on your new baby. Motherhood is a journey filled with many questions. I'm happy to provide some guidance on this one. The best way you can protect your own mental health postpartum is to make a plan while you're still pregnant. Write up a list of people that you can reach out to if you start to feel postpartum anxiety. This list of names may seem easy to produce now, but when you're feeling anxious or depressed, it can be much more difficult to think of these safe people. Talk with the people that will be around you the most about how to spot signs of postpartum anxiety. A woman experiencing postpartum anxiety or postpartum depression may not be able to recognize how bad their mental state has become. But those around her can be quicker to spot the signs and get her help. If possible, line up people to help you with household chores or meals. Taking some of the workload off of yourself will also help prevent feelings of PPA or PPD from emerging. Try to plan ways to do self-care even after your baby arrives. Some great ideas could be reading, taking a bath, or going for a walk. Finally, chat with your doctor about your concerns. If they know that PPA is a risk for you, they can know to check in regularly during the first few weeks and months postpartum. They may also be able to provide recommendations from mental health professionals and other resources that will be helpful to you. Unfortunately, anxiety disorders are genetic and your child will be more likely to develop an anxiety disorder simply because it runs in the family. In addition, having people in the home with current anxiety disorders is also a risk factor. However, neither of these factors guarantees that your child will have an anxiety disorder themselves there are steps you can take to prevent or address mental health issues in your child. While your baby is still young, focus on taking care of your own mental health. Babies are often very in tune with their mothers and sense the energy that they are giving off. Whether it's nervous or happy energy, your baby is likely to sense what you're feeling. Working on your own mental health will help you make a happy environment for your baby. 
then as your baby grows, watch for signs of anxiety or mental health issues. Consider having them speak to a mental health professional even before you see warning signs. Therapy can be beneficial even to those who aren't struggling with their mental health. It can provide tools to live the fullest and happiest life possible. Know that fear of the unknown can be stronger than the challenge itself when the moment arrives. PPA is not guaranteed to happen just because you've experienced anxiety in the past. Make your plan, then take a deep breath and relax. Whatever comes along in the next few months, you can know that you are equipped to handle it. Hi, I'm Cheryl from Cape Town, South Africa, with a a question regarding my three-month-old. Call me grouchy, but I really hate baby talk or the way people talk to their babies. You know, you know the voice I mean, the really high-pitched sing-song voice parents use with babies or pets. It's such a pet peeve of mine. I just I just can't stand it when people speak to their children that way. Is there actually a benefit to speaking to my child in a very tones of voice? Or can I just talk to him like I would um, an adult in my normal speaking voice? Thanks for calling in with your question, Cheryl. Baby talk is not everyone's favorite thing. You aren't alone there. Language plays an essential role in development. So let's dive into more information on baby talk. Baby talk is usually characterized by a higher tone and overly exaggerated facial expressions. Usually, adults will also repeat the same phrase many times to a baby in this higher-pitched way. There are some good aspects to baby talk. It is totally fine for you to understand the parts of baby talk that are great for their development and then only incorporate these specifically as you interact with your baby. The main reason that baby talk holds a baby's attention is that it uses such a happy tone and the person's face is often very engaged in what they're saying. These attributes fill the first goal in a conversation with your baby, which is capturing their attention and motivating them to interact with you. You should smile and make faces at your baby as you talk to them even if you don't want to talk in a higher-pitched voice. There are a few other practices that will help your baby begin to recognize word meanings and speech patterns. Try to use simpler sentences when you are talking directly to them. Talk slower than your normal pace so that they have time to process what you're saying. If possible, get down on their level and let them see your mouth as you talk. Their little brain is absorbing so much information about mouth and lip shape while you talk. Avoid the use of nonsense or not real words like ba 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 or doggy. Sometimes it can be hard to think of things to say to your baby who obviously never responds to you. One great language exercise can be taking your baby for a walk and simply narrating what they are seeing and feeling along the way. You can say, oh, this is a bumpy sidewalk. Do you hear that bird tweeting? Tweet, tweet. Look, there are children playing with a ball over there. You can do this outdoors or at the grocery store or really anywhere that you and your baby go together. Your baby will be learning so many new words and 
absorbing a lot of information about the world around them. Overall, remember that baby talk is not essential, but talking to your baby is. Language development will happen normally if you talk often with your baby. Good afternoon. My name is Sebastian, and I'm calling from Nashville, Tennessee. I'm American, and my wife is French. Now, she insists that our three-year-old should learn French now, in addition to English. But I'm just worried it's going to be confusing for our daughter. My wife says now is the time because the young brain is more flexible. Is she right? Should we be teaching our child both languages at the exact same time? We've been introducing some French books slowly here and there, but is it okay for my wife to speak to her in French and I speak to her in English? I guess I'm just concerned she won't know which language to use when she's trying to express herself. Hi, Sebastian. This is a great question. Many intercultural couples find themselves asking these questions, so thanks for sharing. Your wife is correct that young brains are very flexible and skilled at language learning. Before the age of eight, children have more flexible ear and speech muscles that can detect and mimic different languages. Children's brains are also growing at such a rapid rate that they are better equipped to absorb new information and learn new skills. Though older children and adults can still learn a new language, young children pick it up faster and are able to sound more like a native speaker than if the second language is learned later in life. Being bilingual has been shown in research to have so many positive benefits. Children who speak a second language can have greater problem-solving, critical thinking, and listening skills. A second language can also improve a child's memory, ability to concentrate, and ability to multitask. Children who are proficient in two or more languages show increased creativity and mental flexibility. All of these cognitive benefits often add up to greater academic success as well. When a child is learning a second language by immersion, the learning process is as natural as them learning to walk. Other research even shows that two languages can be learned simultaneously. Learning a second language does not inhibit language development in the native language. Just like a child can hear the difference between a man and woman's voice or a happy and angry person, they can also hear the difference between two languages. One study showed that babies who were exposed often to two different languages could detect a switch in language as early as six months old. How amazing! Bilingual children getting the two languages mixed up should not be a concern. Having each parent in the home speak their native language is a great place to start. Your daughter will likely be exposed to English at daycare or school and with her friends. If your wife decides to only speak French to her, she will still get plenty of practice with her English. The earlier a child starts learning a new language, the easier it will be for them to pick it up. All of the benefits of knowing a second language will be wonderful for your daughter. I would encourage you to give her as much exposure to your wife's language as possible. Your infant's brain is rapidly growing in your care. I hope this episode has inspired you to be more aware of your infant's brain development and how you can positively influence it. Here are three key points to remember about infant mental health and brain development. One, 
Stable, nurturing, and positive relationships with parents and adults helps babies develop strong, healthy brains. So does stimulation, love, and caring interaction. Two, stress is a natural part of life, and adults act as a buffer against that stress for infants, soothing them, helping them adapt, and bringing their stress levels back down to a normal resting state. But if there isn't a supportive, caring adult there to regulate the infant, toxic stress can occur. Toxic stress is a strong, repeated, prolonged activation of the stress response system and can have long-lasting negative effects on children. Three, Piaget's cognitive development theory can be a useful framework when interacting with your infant. Think about the different stages when your baby does something for the first time, like shake her rattle or stack her blocks. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and found it helpful. Stay tuned because next time we'll cover all your burning questions about infant sleep. How much should they sleep? How long will your sleepless nights last with a newborn? Reasons your baby may not want to sleep and so much more. See you next time and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode.